Hello, listeners, and happy Halloween. This is the absolute best holiday, the time of year when we think about things that frighten us. This kind of stuff that made you run into your parents' bedrooms as a kid. When I was little, Halloween was a big holiday in our house. My dad used to go all out with decorations and candy and spooky music, and my mom would always help me make what seemed like a couple of costumes every year, as well as buying the props that would eventually make their way into the sword fights and, you know, general little kid battles that I waged with my cousin Joseph. My aunt and uncle would also always throw a big Halloween party at their house in the woods of New Jersey, an area I thought was particularly scary given the possibility of Jersey Devil attacks. Probably one of my mom's greatest works was my scarecrow costume, complete with secondary straw containment unit and funny hat. Although my personal favorite will always be the year I went as Gambit from the X-Men, complete with my mom's trench coat and an old shirt cut out to make that weird face mask thing that he wears. Anyways, I hinted at the last episode that this one would involve Frankenstein somehow. One of those horror movie staples that isn't really considered all that scary anymore, but which still persists in the public imagination. But after thinking about the topic a little bit, I thought I would be remiss to not expand it out to the scarier side of science in general, and just overall mad scientists throughout history. But just like science moving through history has evolved to include things that can affect more and more people, or the sorts of tests that would require more and more serious questions of morality or ethics, as we go through the history of people that have done immoral or weird things with science, we almost necessarily come to a point where the kind of shocking brutality that science might cause just becomes frightening. So this episode is going to get pretty gruesome towards the end. So if you or someone listening is affected strongly by discussions of war crimes, medical experiments, or animal cruelty, I caution you that this one might disturb you. This episode will also include discussions about procreation, or at least the weird ways that the medieval scientists thought procreation could happen. So if you're listening with a young one, you might want to skip this episode. The idea that somewhere in a secret government facility or up on a hilltop in the middle of the woods where they can be alone, there are genius level intellects who have gone insane or who are doing things for what they believe are good reasons, but which will lead to horrible and unforeseen results is one that is almost as old as science itself. Back in history, it was those practicing science who were believed to be performing necromancy or alchemy or some other nefarious dark art working actively against the church and the common people. And weirdly enough, scientists did sometimes have to do things that the population considered taboo or immoral, inspiring this image. Back when the study of the human body was in its infancy, we did not allow anatomists or medical researchers to perform autopsies on dead bodies, requiring doctors to pay grave robbers to provide samples for them to take apart. In the United Kingdom, for instance, bodies were only provided to medical schools if the court had decreed that a criminal be executed and dissected, keeping the supply of bodies extremely low until the Anatomy Act of 1832. This led to widespread grave robbing, causing some to be buried in steel caskets, to have family members watch over them for weeks, or to even put mort safes, 
a sort of iron cage to stop disinterment around their grave sites. So the idea of a grave snatching criminal scientist isn't really all that out of the realm of possibility and wouldn't have even been that big of a shock to the people reading Frankenstein when it was first published. Even today, there are scientists doing things that an oftentimes significant percentage of the population would consider immoral. Just think about the basis of all biotechnological research, for instance, the use of human stem cells. Testing on animals is another good example of this, something that is still considered an extremely touchy subject despite the huge benefits it reaps. So touchy, in fact, that the sites of animal testing are closely guarded secrets, not shared with those outside of the community for fear of protest and potential attack to those doing this sort of work. Even my seemingly benign research into combating climate change is sometimes used to instill fear in the populace. According to one of the two presidential candidates this year, I am working on a Chinese hoax to belittle American business interest. And while I love a good dumpling, unless I've been missing my checks in the mail, I nor anyone else in my field is, at least to my knowledge, working in cahoots with the Chinese government. But I digress. In this episode, I'm going to talk about some of the real mad scientists throughout history and eventually come to people that are just plain evil. I'll also introduce some of you to, I hope, cases of scientific malpractice or mistakes that you may not have heard of before. Things that had insane consequences, some of which are still being felt today. And finally, we'll ponder some of the big, scary, sciencey things today. And what kind of horrible futures they may bring if the things people worry may go wrong actually do. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. Tonight's episode, Mad Science. Historically, there are a huge number of cases of scientists one would consider to be doing things that are frightening or weird. One of the weirdest for me is Paracelsus, also known as Philip von Hohenheim, who is credited as being the founder of toxicology, as well as being a pretty significant alchemist, chemist, and philosopher. He lived in the 16th century and comes into this episode because he had a pretty crazy idea about how one could create a homunculus, which is Latin for little man, via alchemical means. This grew out of the idea of preformationism, which basically said that organisms developed from miniature versions of themselves, or that the form a living thing takes is the form it has throughout its development. See, before we were able to actually look at sperm under the microscope, which was first done by Van Leeuwenhoek, it was believed that sperm cells contained teeny tiny, fully formed humans, known as homunculi. These existed since the beginning of creation, since God must have created all things at once, imbuing each homunculi with a soul. This means, by the way, that every one of these little people must have contained sperm, which in turn contained more sperm, all the way down to infinity and beyond. But this wasn't considered a flaw, however, in this theory. It was thought to explain how it was that, through Adam's original sin, we've all been branded with sin. 
even wackier, it means that offspring are really only the result of their father's homunculi. With the mother providing merely like a warm place to hang out for nine months before your tiny human thing is ready to pop out of the oven. Parasalsis ran with this notion and believed that, therefore, one could create a larger version of this tiny person through various alchemical means, without the presence of a human female, by the way. In De Natura Rerum, published in 1537, he lays out his method for creating a homunculi. Quote, that the sperm of a man be putrefied by itself in a sealed cucurbit for 40 days with the highest degree of putrefaction in a horse's womb, or at least so long that it comes to life and move itself and stirs, which is easily observed. After this time, it will look somewhat like a man, but transparent, without a body. If, after this, it be fed wisely with the arcanum of human blood, and be nourished for up to 40 weeks, and be kept in the even heat of a horse's womb, a living human child grows therefrom, with all its members like another child, which is born of a woman, but much smaller. End quote. Stuff like this makes you wonder if Paracelsus ever tried this stuff, or if he'd even, like, held the hand of a romantic partner. It's like the crazy stories kids make up to explain how sex works to each other. I know I at least had that awkward conversation with my parents, where my dad sat me down amongst my comic books and told me that the fact that I still called it making a homunculi meant that I just wasn't ready to start trying to have one. <laughs> Even more insanely, this stuff persisted until super late in history, a year before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So, 1775, Count Johann Ferdinand von Kufstein and Abe Galoni supposedly made 10 homunculi who could see the future, which they kept in glass containers in a Masonic lodge in Vienna. And it wasn't like just these two guys that were like, no, we totally made a homunculi, you guys. Supposedly, these were seen by a number of different people at the time. Another scientist, and in fact, the person who is somewhat controversially credited as being the inspiration for Dr. Frankenstein, being born at Castle Frankenstein, was Johann Conrad Dippel. Dippel was primarily trained as a theologian, although he was a practicing alchemist and anatomist as well. His theological fieriness and unconventional opinions, such as that all churches should be dismembered so that individuals could have a personal connection with God caused him to be charged with heresy and banned from various European countries. He's probably most notable though, for his use of animal oils and particularly the creation of something called Dipple's oil, which he claimed was the elixir of life. The oil was made from ground up bones and putrefied fat and muscle tissue and was used all the way up to World War II as a chemical warfare agent, specifically used to make well water undrinkable by placing the oil into the water. Dibble also supported the idea that the soul could be transferred from one corpse to another, although if this was specifically for the use of the reanimation of corpses, is something that he was never specifically known to have practiced. 
Of course, he was involved in grave robbing and other illegal activities that were common amongst the anatomists and medical researchers of the time. But his use of his oils as an alchemical ingredient was really the primary specialty that he was known for. He claimed to be able to exercise demons, for instance, through the use of a boiled animal bone and flesh oil. Pretty gross. Another supposed influence on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is Giovanni Aldini, who was the nephew of Luigi Calvini, who discovered biological electromagnetism or that cells can transport electricity to cause muscle spasms and movement. Aldini furthered these studies and in particular would electrocute executed criminals in various ways to see what effect this would have on their bodies. The most famous of these was on the convict George Foster. This demonstration has been described as the following in the Newgate Calendar newspaper. Quote, On the first application of the process to the face, the jaws of the deceased criminal began to quiver, and the adjoining muscles were horribly contorted, and one eye was actually opened. In the subsequent parts of the process, the right hand was raised and clenched, and the legs and thighs were set in motion. End quote. Others doing similar work claim that they could actually raise people from the dead, depending on the cause of death, of course, through the use of electricity. Andrew Yur is one such researcher, who in 1818 revealed to the public that he had been performing secret experiments on the body of the murderer Matthew Clydesdale. Describing this experiment, he said, quote, Every muscle of the body was immediately agitated with convulsive movements, resembling a violent shuddering from cold. On moving the second rod from hip to knee, the knee being previously bent, the leg was thrown out with such violence as nearly to overturn one of the assistants, who in vain tried to prevent its extension. The body was also made to perform the movements of breathing by stimulating the phrenic nerve in the diaphragm. When the supraorbital nerve was excited, every muscle in his countenance was simultaneously thrown into fearful action. Rage, horror, despair, anguish, and ghastly smiles united their hideous expressions in the murderer's face, surpassing far the wildest representations of Fuseli or Akeen. At this period, several of the spectators were forced to leave the apartment from terror or sickness, and one gentleman fainted. End quote. Just to be clear, though, these guys weren't mad scientists in the way that we think of them now. Although some did criminal acts, others were doing work that has led to a huge amount of the biological and medical knowledge that we have today. As technology progressed, though, the scale of these attempts to beat death or to alter the human body to improve its performance got even weirder. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that helped shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. The first such scientist is Ilya Ivanovich Ivanov, a biologist who specialized in artificial insemination, who worked in the Russian Federation and then the Soviet Union after the revolution. 
Now, that may not sound all that glamorous, but in fact, his work revolutionized the field of animal husbandry and therefore all of animal agriculture, allowing for us to perform engineered breeding in order to improve animal health and output for humans. He also allowed for the significant increase in the amount of fertilizations possible in a given year. But the thing that he is probably most well known for are his attempts to create a human-ape hybrid. He utilized artificial insemination to try and fertilize female chimpanzees with human sperm, something that, thankfully, didn't work. And then, insanely, he started up a process to attempt the reverse to impregnate human volunteers, human volunteers, with chimpanzee sperm. This was only halted when his chimpanzee died, as opposed to, like, someone telling him that he was a madman. His work actually led to a sort of Bigfoot mythos as well, where his research led to the creation of other hybrids supposedly in the Soviet Union, which escaped and then became the source of local Bigfoot and Sasquatch sightings. Another scientist working in the Soviet Union during the Stalinist era was doing things that are even grosser and more weird, at least in my opinion. Sergei Brukonenko was one of the heads of the Research Institute of Experimental Surgery, and his work with Alexander Vishnevsky helped to further open heart procedures in the Soviet Union, as well as the creation of the autojector, a machine that allowed for the continued pumping of blood and air to the body, even when the lungs or heart were under surgery. Basically, it was one of the earliest heart and lung bypass machines. But what's insane is how he tested these things and some of the other just chilling things he worked on. To begin with, his experiments often utilized decapitated animals, usually dogs, and specifically were performed in order to keep them alive for hours once separated from the body. One of these experiments utilizing the autojector is called Experiments in the Revival of Organisms, and is available on YouTube even now. It shows a dog's head supposedly on a stick attached to the autojector, responding to stimuli such as being touched with a stick or a noise. It is pretty disturbing, even if many people consider it to be staged for that filming itself. Even more crazy, and something that many people consider to be science fiction even today, is that scientists working on similar sorts of things we're utilizing these techniques to perform full head transplants in animal models. Vladimir Demikov in the Soviet Union transplanted a dog's head onto that of another, work which, while insane to hear about, actually led to the techniques that are absolutely vital today to organ transplant. This led a group of scientists in the United States, led by Robert White, to transplant the head of one monkey onto the body of another. The experiment was successful as well, allowing both heads to see, smell, taste, and hear. And truly, truly shockingly, he said, quote, What has been accomplished in the animal model, prolonged hypothermic preservation, and cephalic transplantation, is fully accomplishable in the human sphere. Whether such dramatic procedures will ever be justified in the human area must wait not only upon the continued advance of medical science, but more appropriately, the moral and social justification of such procedural undertakings. End quote. 
White was practicing to do a human head transplant as late as 1990, where he practiced on cadavers. But you want to hear something even crazier than that? There is now a plan to actually perform a full head transplant. Valery Spiridonov has volunteered to be the head transplanted, with Dr. Sergio Canavero attempting the surgery as soon as 2017. As crazy as it sounds, Valerie suffers from spinal muscular atrophy, basically causing his motor neurons to become lost and leading to muscle wasting and eventually death. It is a horrible disease, basically causing one to become stuck in one's own body until their heart and lungs just give up. So really, who are we to judge this person who has potentially a chance to continue living with his family and friends a little while longer? But the questions and risks are obviously enormous. For instance, what will the new chemical levels from the host body do to his brain chemistry? What if his new immune system attacks his head in a similar way that an organ transplantee's body may reject the new tissue? What if he loses his mind, the change being too much for his consciousness to take? And what if he literally loses his mind? What if the brain isn't just where the mind lives? What if there really is a soul, and his is lost somewhere because of the severing of the brain from the body? There is a lot at stake with this surgery, and it will be partially terrifying and partially fascinating to see what comes from it. And our current science, even outside of medicine, isn't without its potential ethical and moral problems, and the risk of becoming so wrapped up in what we're doing that we cause some sort of horrible or immoral side effect. Nanotechnology is a field where I have worked now for around five years, and one that I have been fascinated by for as long as I can remember. But part of the story of nanotechnology is that, if we are able to create self-replicating nanomachines that pull apart atoms from the surrounding environment to self-replicate, well, what happens if they start over-replicating? This is often put out there as the idea that these nanorobots might replicate to such a point that they overcome the Earth, blocking out the sun and killing us all on their quest for further atoms or something. I mean, I don't want to ruin a good horror story, but so far our nanomachines can literally sort of sometimes, under the right circumstances, show mobility kind of towards a target. For instance, in the case of nanoparticles that have chemical markers that cause them to attach to some biological object for diseases or cancer research. But I wouldn't be too worried about self-replicating nanomachines anytime soon. Other horror movie style scientific breakthroughs include nuclear energy and nuclear weapons, genetically modified organisms, including food and humans themselves the takeover of our lives through the use of the internet and continued connectivity, the erosion of our privacy, cloning, and so many others, it is hard to stop naming them as I'm writing this script. And it is extremely important that we are on the lookout for these problems, but at the same time, not becoming so wrapped up in our fear that we don't think rationally about the issues at hand and the benefits that they might bring to humanity. But frankly... That is the sort of kind of thinking that exactly leads to the kinds of mad scientist-style errors that we've been talking about. One person makes the utilitarian-style argument that an immoral experiment is for the greater good, and therefore must not be immoral. 
and they do things that are shocking and horrible and make your skin crawl in some cases. And yet they make progress. All of the people we've talked about tonight so far are remembered as weirdos. Sure. And in some cases as immoral and terrifyingly wrong individuals, but are also remembered for their contributions to science. We wouldn't have modern medicine without them. And so it becomes something of a balancing act when thinking about what is right or wrong, even in modern science. Do we use stem cells to save lives? If the method of collecting stem cells is morally difficult for some? Do we use politics to force individuals to combat climate change? If to do so seems to be an overreach of political power. Do we let the consenting adult and the consenting surgeon perform a surgery that was once the realm of hard movie science fiction? So far, we've talked about pretty light stuff. Things that are mad science, but not necessarily evil science. But there are some truly disturbing and frightening aspects of science turned towards purely destructive goals or scientific testing performed without any particular worry about how it affects the life around us that history has shown us. The sort of miscalculation of the ends justifying the means. Now, the most obvious case of this are the Nazis, who did absolutely atrocious things to innocents, who they belittled and scapegoated to such an extent that it made it easy to perform the sort of widespread human tests that they performed. But another part of the Axis powers, the Japanese, also committed human trials, and on a scale that I think is extremely shocking to most American listeners of this podcast. At least it was shocking to me. The biological weapons program of the Japanese military was unprecedented at the time, utilizing bubonic plague, cholera, and anthrax, just to name a few. With the weaponized viruses themselves, as well as their application method, being perfected and engineered by Dr. Shiro Ishii. He tested these biological weapons throughout the Second Sino-Japanese War, as well as World War II, resulting in what some have estimated to be as many as 600,000 deaths with almost 400,000 of those coming from Chinese civilians living in the towns and cities where his weapons were tested in secret. Even more shocking is the fact that these weapons were nearly used in combat a number of times. At the Battle of Iwo Jima, for example, the gliders that were supposed to drop the payload of plague-infested fleas never made it to their destination. In the Battle of Saipan, it was a submarine that was going to deliver the plague fleas only to be sunk by the American sub Swordfish. But the part of this story that I found the most chilling is the fact that we came extremely close to seeing weaponized plague used in the United States. The Japanese surrendered on August 15, 1945, but had been in preparation for an attack on California for some time, which was planned for September 22nd. The plan, codenamed Operation Cherry Blossoms at Night, would have seen a kamikaze-style attack on Southern California, dropping plague-infested fleas into the United States. Just imagine that. Only a few more weeks of fighting, and we would have seen biological weapons deployed potentially in a way that could have been absolutely horrific. It makes you wonder about the calculus to drop the atomic bombs, frankly, especially given the fact that I, and I am sure many other American students, have never really been told about this particular side of the war in the Pacific. What's even more insane here 
is that Dr. Shiro Ishii was never tried for war crimes. He was basically allowed to live out his days until he died from natural causes, after cooperating with the United States and providing data from his test on civilians. Some of the most obvious cases of science gone amok in this way are those that occurred during wartime, where the enemy is construed as the other and belittled to such a point that the calculation of ethical treatment becomes skewed to such an extent that truly horrendous things can occur. But it isn't just in wartime that these sorts of horrible things happen. And in fact, any time that one group is ostracized as an other in society, the ground for weird testing in unethical ways especially seems to become ripe. And it isn't just the usual suspects, for instance, the Nazis, that can do horrendous things to other people for the purpose of medical or technological advancement. The United States helped create Agent Orange and utilized it during the Vietnam War. We dosed LSD to unwitting people as part of MK Ultra, leading to psychosis and suicides and other ill effects. And we perfected and used atomic weaponry at the end of World War II. Corporations are another source of experimental or medical immorality. For instance, in the episode on radioactivity, we talked about the various types of commodities, and especially cosmetics, that contain radium or thorium salts, leading to cancer and death for factory workers exposed to these compounds in high doses. Other cases of mistakes in understanding the risks of a technology include the use of asbestos as part of a huge number of various building materials to lower the risks of fire, leading to mesothelioma and other forms of lung cancer, or the use of thalidomide to treat morning sickness, leading to approximately 10,000 cases of birth defects with only a 50% survival rate. I'm not trying to defend or belittle anyone's country or sad history here, but this is a part of scientific history and a pretty frightening lesson for any practicing scientist, myself included, that anyone today would be remiss to forget. That's the end of this episode. I hope it was interesting, and I hope that you have gotten significantly more full of scientific history and candy this Halloween week. I'll be back in about two and a half weeks with another episode. In the meantime, you can contact me via email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com, all one word, on Twitter through at madscientistpod, and on Podbean. Send me questions or concerns through there, and thank you so much for listening. My logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Once again, thank you so much. grown up me too yep me too but you know these days being a grown-up can really suck luckily we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation we had video arcades and also some of the best tv and movies ever made we lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics the list goes on and on yep generation x exactly and we're gen x grown-up every week the gen x grown-up podcast explores media tech toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Basically life sucks as a grown-up.
All right. All right. You think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> no. Right.